Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sermon Podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location where each week you'll hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others so that you can go and live a life driven by faith. You and I live in a culture that is increasingly opposed to those who trust in God. And it can be a challenge to understand how we are to live in such a world. Right now, we are in a journey through the book of Daniel, learning how God calls us to live when surrounded by people who do not believe. This week, we're going to talk about how to deal with the pressure to take your faith out of the public realm and keep it private. It's an important topic, so I hope you enjoy it and I hope you listen closely because I believe God has something He would like to say to you. A couple of months ago, a couple of months ago, I was at a restaurant, a local restaurant, and it was, it was, um, you know, like a normal sports bar. So we were, I was there for lunch, and we were sitting at, there was a bunch of high top tables, and, and I was meeting someone from the church there. We were grabbing a sandwich and going to talk through some things. And so we were sitting at one of the high top tables, and you can picture this sort of space, right? There were uh, a number of, of high top tables in this area and TVs all over the place playing all sorts of different sports and sporting shows. And we were sitting at our table and uh, we sat down and the waitress came over. She was very nice. We ordered our food and then our food came. And while we were sitting at the table, I said to the person that I was meeting with, I said, let me pray for our food. He said, okay. So we both, as you would do. We bowed our head and closed our eyes, and I started to pray. Now, I didn't realize that from my, my left-hand side, while I'm praying with, uh, with this other gentleman uh, for our food, the waitress went into panic mode. She saw us from near the kitchen, and she came running through the tables, weaving through all of those high-top tables, and came running up to our table. And while I was in mid-prayer, she said to us, what's wrong with your food? And I looked up at her and I said, well, well, nothing's wrong with the food. And she said to me, well, both of you were like totally staring at your food. And we said, I said to her, I said, well, I said, we weren't really looking at our food. I was actually praying. And I could see her face change. You know this look, right? Uh, I could see her face start to change. It went from concern over the food uh, to panic because now she had encountered some you know, insane religious person. And so uh, she immediately started to backpedal and try to weave her way back through those tables and get out of there as quickly as possible. But you know how this works, right? If you're a person of faith, if you're someone that says you follow Jesus, you know how this works, where if you bring your faith out into the public realm, uh, people have a reaction to that. And there's a, there's a pressure, isn't there? I mean, this this waitress was very nice about it, but there's a pressure there in our current world. There is a pressure to take our faith, which is in many ways to be public, and to make it private, to keep it something that's only in the walls of our church or only in the walls of our home, to take faith and to make it a private thing. There's that real pressure out there. And there are rules on the books, aren't there? And there are rules off the books, things we just understand that you're not supposed to do that put a pressure on us uh, to take our faith and put it into hiding. You and I feel that in our world today. And so there's this big question that you and I are going to deal with today. And the question is this. How should you respond when there is pressure to take your faith into hiding? How should you respond to that? We'll talk a little bit more about that. We're going to talk about that through one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. 
when some of you, when we announced a few weeks ago that we'd be walking through the book of Daniel, you said to yourself, you're like, I don't know much about the Bible, but I think I know this Daniel guy. He's the one with the lions, right? And we got into the book of Daniel and we were talking about kings and kingdoms and dreams and hands writing weird messages on walls. And you started thinking to yourself, I thought this was the lion guy. Do they ever get to the lions? Well, this is your week. This is the week that we talk about Daniel and the lion's den. And I remember when I was a kid growing up and whether I I watched some cartoon movie about Daniel and the lion's den or whether it was the flannel graph boards that our teachers used to have in Sunday school, when we talked about this story of Daniel and the lion's den, all the emphasis was about the fact of what, but was about what happened when Daniel actually got thrown into the den of lions. We all, that's what we would talk about. What happened outside of that wasn't really the focus. What, what the focus was, the high point of the story, was what happened when Daniel got thrown into that pit with those lions. But as I've been studying the story over the last couple of weeks, I felt like what God was saying to me and what God is saying to you this morning is that in our current culture, of living in a place where there is great pressure to take our faith and bring it into hiding, to make it something that's very private and not bother anyone with it, not offend anyone with it, not take it out into the public sphere. When we're living in that sort of pressure, what Daniel does before the lion's den even comes into into play is something that you and I need to consider and to hear. This is very important. Not only what happens once Daniel's there, but what happens before Daniel gets there is an important thing to consider. And so we're going to start this story. We're going to spend a lot of our time this morning, in the, in the few minutes that we have together, we're going to spend a lot of our time thinking about what Daniel does before the lions even come into play, because that is a significant piece of this story that often gets overlooked. And as we watch what Daniel does when there is great pressure on him to take his faith out of the public realm and to keep it private only to himself, you and I are going to learn something about how we should respond when we have that pressure as well. Here's what happens. Chapter 6, verse 1. So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom. Now, I'm going to pause there for one quick second. This guy, Darius, this is a new king, if you've been following us, with us. Chapter 5, we had Belshazzar. Chapter 4, we had Nebuchadnezzar. And we had Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the beginning of the book. So if you remember back to last week, not only do we have a new king, this King Darius, who is also known as King Cyrus, not only do we have a new king, but we also have a whole new empire. When Daniel was 15, you remember this story? If you've been with us over the last few weeks, when Daniel was just a teenager, he was living in Jerusalem with his family and his friends, and the Babylonian empire, the greatest nation of their day, came and overtook their people. And Daniel was ripped from his family, ripped from his, his, what he knew, and put into the Babylonian schools to train him to be a leader within the Babylonian empire. And he became a great leader within that empire. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you've seen those stories. But now Persia has taken over. Do you remember that last week? Persia took over from Babylon. And so we have a new king and a new kingdom. And in the first few chapters, God has been making his name known in Babylon through Daniel and his friends. God's been proving that he's greater than the Babylonian God. So now we have this big question. New kingdom, new people. How is God going to make his name known to them? So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, that would be like mayors or governors to help him rule, Congress, Congress people, to be throughout the whole kingdom. 
And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, this is the executive branch, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Think about this. Think about what it must be like when you're part of an empire and a new empire takes over. I don't know much about how this worked in the ancient world. I wasn't there. I didn't see it happen. But we know what it's like when a company buys out another company, right? Have you ever been working for a company or known someone working for a company and they get bought out? All of a sudden, there's great fear, isn't there? Who are they going to keep? Who are they going to let go? And many times, unfortunately, all the people that were from the old place, the old company, they all are let go so that the new people can be in control. I would think even more so, more than a company acquisition, in in ancient empires, when a new empire took over, I'm sure not only did all the old people go, I bet many of all the old people were killed off. So there had to be something special about Daniel. Not only that he's kept from the Babylonian empire, that he's not let go, that he's not let go or worse, but that now he's still a ruler in this Persian empire. There had to be something great about him, about his character. But you can imagine what this must do to the other officials. They're Persian. Daniel's a foreigner. He's this Israelite that was brought into captivity by the Babylonians. And now he's hung around for a while. And now this Persian king is going to put him in charge of everybody. Think if you're one of the Persian rulers. Think if you're one of the other 120 mayors or or representatives that have been put into place. How would you feel? You're Persian. You have the same bloodline. You have the same background. And now your king's going to let this foreigner be in charge. They didn't like it. Look what they do. In verse 4, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. That's a challenge to me, right? If people wanted to find something wrong with me and bring a complaint against me, could they do it outside of my faith? They couldn't with Daniel. They were watching him. They were waiting for him to steal paper clips from the supply cabinet. They were waiting for him to be on Facebook when he was supposed to be working. They were waiting for Daniel to slip up in some other way, but he doesn't do it. And they say, the only way we can get this guy is if we attack his faith. So then these high officials, verse 6, and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed, according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So these guys that are jealous of Daniel, that don't want him in charge, they know the only way they can get him is to attack his faith. And so they come to the king and they say, oh, king, you know how you're great? And the king says, yeah, I know how I'm great. Like, we think you're so great that all of us have gotten together and agreed. All your people that are ruling have gotten together and agreed. That was a lie because Daniel had not gotten together with them and agreed. 
The highest person after the king had not gotten together and agreed to this. But they come to the king and they say, oh, king, you are the best. And he's like, yeah, I know. And they're like, we have all gotten together and we think you're so great. We think you're so great that you should sign a law that for 30 days, everyone should pray to you and nobody else. So they know Daniel's not going to do this. He's going to keep praying to his God. Everyone for 30 days should pray to you. And if they don't pray to you, they should be thrown into the den of lions. And now this question is for Daniel, the same question we're asking for us. How should you respond? How should Daniel respond to the pressure to take his faith into hiding? Because here's the thing. If Daniel prays to God, but he does it in his heart, he does it where no one else sees him, he won't get in trouble. He won't get in trouble. No one will ever know. But Daniel feels this pressure. And the pressure is real because this den of lion things, is, it, that's a real threat, right? In fact, this week I read a story about a Czech man who a number of months ago took in a lioness cub as a pet. Did you see this story this week? It was in the news this week. And he would post videos on YouTube and on Facebook of him caring for his pet lion uh, and feeding her and how close they were. But we all know how this story is going to end, right? I mean, I don't want to be mean, but like, it only ends one, one way, when you spend too much time with lions. And sure enough, this week, the officials walked into his backyard, and there in the cage, uh, he was. And the lion had done what lions do, and had taken her owner's life. And that's unfortunate, but at the same point, I, that's what happens with lions. That's what they do. And so for Daniel, this was a real threat, a real pressure. How would he respond to this pressure to take his faith into hiding? Now, you and I don't necessarily face the pressure of a den of lions. Although, those, those who call themselves peoples of faith around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in other nations, they face this all the time. There is a real threat of death if they follow Jesus Christ. For you and I, the threat of death is, is not something as of yet that is, a, that is a real threat for us in our culture, but yet the pressure is still there and the pressure is real to take our faith and to put it into hiding. About a year and a half ago, the mayor of Houston, maybe you remember this story, went to the largest churches in the city and demanded that the pastors give her the manuscripts of their sermons so that her office could review the sermons and make sure that what was being said in the churches in Houston was okay as far as the mayor's office was concerned. Now, the churches refused to do it. The, you know, luckily, the pastors refused to do it. And when it went to the courts, the courts looked at the mayor and said, I don't know if you've read the First Amendment, but you can't do this. And yet, the groundwork is taking place in our culture. Right? So this is maybe the first time it's happened, but the groundwork is taking place where more and more the government might begin to decide what can and can't be said in our churches. And certainly that is the way it is around the world. Maybe you heard this story just this week. Just this week, the dean of the School of Business at Ryder University, just outside of Trenton, New Jersey, stepped down from her position and wrote a letter. Because the university declared that Chick-fil-A could not open up a site on their campus. And before you, you say to yourself, man, she must have really loved waffle fries to quit her job over this. 
The reality is the reason that the university would not allow Chick-fil-A a place on their campus is because Chick-fil-A's owners are very overtly Christian and they support causes that they feel are consistent with their beliefs. And they do that out in the open. And so the university said because of that, they are not allowed to have a restaurant on our campus. And the dean of the school of business said, well, I'm also a Christian, so I can't work here anymore. And that's a real pressure. And maybe you're not in a position yet where you might have to quit your job over your faith. Maybe you're not in a position where you feel that sort of pressure. But you and I know what this feels like in today's world, right? There is pressure when we walk into the workplace, when we walk into a meeting with our friends, when you walk into your classroom at the university or in high school or in middle school to check your faith at the door. There is a real pressure to keep that quiet. There's a real pressure not to put up a Bible verse in your cubicle. There's a real pressure to make sure no one's seeing you pray. There's a real pressure to take all of that stuff that used to be okay to be public and to put it in the private realm because you might offend somebody, because you might be seen as as intolerant. And so there's this real pressure to take that and to put it in the private realm. And the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Because we feel like for the sake of self-preservation, we better do that. Otherwise, we might get in trouble. We might fail the class. We might lose our job. We might lose friends. We might lose family members if we don't take this public thing and make it private. And the challenge that we have is God really doesn't leave it open to us to keep our faith private all the time. God tells us to go and to share his love and to share his message, and to tell people about him. And so God doesn't leave us the option to keep our faith completely private. But yet the culture is telling us not to make it public. So what do we do? Well, I'm going to suggest to you today that we do exactly what Daniel did. And in these verses, we see Daniel doing two things. And the first thing that he does is Daniel, in the face of this threat, remains disciplined in his displays of devotion to God. Daniel remains disciplined in his displays of devotion to God. Look at verse 10. This to me is the key verse of the whole whole chapter. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, all right, this isn't Daniel doing this out of ignorance. Daniel knows the law. He knows what's happening. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Pay attention to those last few words. As he had done previously. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, you know what he did? The same thing he's always done. For 70 years, Daniel's been in exile. For 70 years, God has been showing himself faithful. And for 70 years, Daniel has gone up to his bedroom and he had a window in his bedroom that faced his old home where he grew up of Jerusalem. And there's no command in scripture that that followers of God should face the city of Jerusalem and pray. That's not in here. But Daniel felt convicted to do it. It was just something that, that Daniel knew God wanted him to do to go up into his bedroom, open up those windows towards Jerusalem, get down on his knees and pray three times a day for his people, for the city that he grew up in, which now lay in ruins, and that God would be merciful and restore his people. 
And when Daniel found out this document was signed that said, do not pray anymore to anyone other than Darius or be thrown in the lion's den, how much pressure do you think Daniel must have felt? He knew if he went up in his room, all he had to do was just close that window. That's all he had to do. The shutters, the shade, whatever he had, all he had to do was close the window, get down on his knees. He could still face Jerusalem and pray, and nothing bad would happen to him. But he wasn't about to change for the king. He wasn't about to to break down his displays of devotion because the king was threatening him with lions. And so he kept the windows open, fully knowing what was was going to happen, and he did exactly what he had always done. Because here's what Daniel knew. This wasn't just about him and the lion's den. This wasn't just about about him and, and whether or not he'd be thrown into a pit with lions. There was something much bigger going on. This was about the gods of the Persian people that were ruling and the God of the Israelites whom Daniel served. This was about the religion, the false religion of the people who were ruling that day and the one true God that Daniel knew and loved and served. And that was the bigger battle that was going on. And so Daniel, he was going to honor God above the other gods no matter what. For him to close the window and draw the shade would have been to say to all these other officials who were watching him, You're stronger than my God. You win. You win. God can't do anything about the lions. That's a scary thing. So here's the deal. I'll I'll close the window. I'll draw the shades for 30 days. It was just 30 days. It was one month. You win. Your Your God's stronger than my God. You guys are scarier. You guys are scary. And the lions are scary. And and my God can't do anything about that. So I'll close the window. I'll draw the shades, no problem. Day 31, I'll open them up again. Daniel can't do it because there's this bigger battle going on. And see, you and I face this pressure, don't we? We face this pressure to give in and to take what should be a public display of our faith, something that we wear on our sleeves, something that we're able to share with other people, not in a way to lord it over them or to condemn other people, but to let people know that we follow Jesus Christ with our lives and God loves them and has an amazing plan for their life. And because of the pressure, we are willing to close the window and draw the shades. And I wonder in your life, in your life, where are you closing the window and drawing the shades so that people don't say anything negative about you, so that nothing bad happens to you. I'm challenged with that. I'm challenged with that even when I'm with people that aren't believers, that don't go to church, and they ask me what I do. How much do I get into it? How much in those moments of, of just casual conversation do I really get into the fact that I pastor a church and it's not just a community organization that's there for the benefit of the town, but that we are people on mission who truly believe that God is real and that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and to be raised again so that we could have new life. How much do I get into it when we're just at a work event for my wife's company and people are just saying hello? And when am, I, when am I, because I'm fearful of what other people might say, closing the window and drawing the shades so that no one judges me or thinks negative about me? It's a real pressure. 
we ought to remember that there's something bigger going on. It's not just about us and what people might think about us. Every time we do that, we are saying, you know what? You're greater than my God. The pressure that you're putting on me to take my faith and make it private is, 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 is greater than what God is able to do. So because of that reality, I will close the window, draw the shade. I'll keep it to myself. You win. You're scarier and stronger than my God. There's something bigger going on here that we ought to recognize. I read this week about a a young man named Derek Lam who lives in Hong Kong. And Derek is fighting for religious freedom in his country. I think we have a, a picture of Derek. He's the one in the green shirt. He has been threatened multiple times by the Chinese government, which is in control in Hong Kong. They're demolishing churches and breaking up Christian gatherings. And as long as people do have their faith uh, really underground in tiny, tiny groups, they can escape the government. But Derek feels called by God to speak out about it. And he wrote an op-ed for the New York Times in August of 2017. And he said, I don't care if I have to do this behind bars. I am going to continue to stand up for my faith because if I don't, it would be like allowing Jesus to bow down to the Chinese rulers who are in control. See, he gets it. There's a bigger battle happening. And to retreat is not just self-preservation. It's to say, your gods are greater than my God. So not only do we continue with our displays of devotion, but then we need to do what, else, what, what Daniel also did. And that is Daniel trusted God for his deliverance. See, Daniel was disciplined in his display of devotion, and he left deliverance up to God. He left that up to him. It wasn't his problem to figure out how he would close the mouths of the lions. There's no no verses in here where Daniel prayed, and then secretly at night, he went and put a rope down to the bottom of the den with anchor points so that he could rappel out of there if he ever got thrown in. He trusted God with that piece. Whatever they said about him, whatever happened to him, that was up to to God. And watch what happens in verse 19. So sure enough, the people go to Darius and they say, Darius, Daniel, he didn't want to follow the law. And Darius immediately recognizes that he's been tricked and he is saddened because Daniel is his most trusted official. This is right-hand man. It's the one that he wants in charge of his kingdom. And now unwittingly, he has condemned his most trusted official to death. And so Darius throws him in the pit. He has no choice. It's the law. And he had no veto power in that day. And in verse 19, watch what happens. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. I'm sure that he expected all he would hear is the sound of lions licking their lips. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm." Jump down to verse 25. Look what happens with the king. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Daniel trusted God for deliverance. He left that up to him. And God shut the mouths of the lions so that the king now who decreed that everyone should be praying to him, now is worshiping Daniel's God and decreeing that everyone would follow the God of Daniel. And the reason that's happening is because Daniel didn't make his faith private, but continued in his displays of devotion and trusted God with the rest. Now here's the problem we have. If you were to watch certain preachers or listen to them, they'll tell you something like this. So the moral of the story is, next time you're in the pit with the lions, you trust God, he'll shut their mouths. But that can't be the moral of the story because God doesn't always do that. If we were to jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the faith chapter. It's where all the big heroes of the faith are mentioned, Abraham and Moses and Noah. If you've been around church for a while, you might be familiar with that chapter. There is in that chapter both stories of people who God shut the mouths of the lion, and then you move forward a few verses, and then there's also stories of people who died for the faith. So how do we reconcile that? See, sometimes God is going to protect us from the punishment, and other times we have to face it. So what do we do with that? Well, I think in the middle of all that, we need to remember two things. First, God is always going to work in a way that brings him the greatest glory. God is always going to work in a way that brings him the greatest glory. In Daniel's case, it was to shut the mouths of the lions. And an entire nation that was a pagan nation at the end is worshiping God at the decree of their king. God gets the most glory. You remember in October, if you were with us, we had Ann Stewart come and share with us. Her and her husband, Stan, were missionaries in the Middle East, and Ann and her kids are still there. And while they were there, her husband, Stan, was diagnosed with advanced aggressive cancer. And Stan felt God say something to him. He could have come home. They were from San Diego. He could have gone back to San Diego and received treatment. But God said to Stan, Stan, I want you to stay here among people who do not know me and who greatly fear death. And I want you to show them what it looks like to die with hope and significance and purpose. Now, they were there for years, and not one person began to follow Jesus with their life. But after Stan's death, many have chosen to follow Jesus with their life. God's going to work in the way that brings him the greatest glory. And we have to trust him with that. And there's another thing we ought to keep in mind. Deliverance is more about the next world than it is about this one. God delivers us in this world, and it's an amazing thing. Those are miracles. It's a miracle when God delivers us. But ultimate deliverance through Jesus Christ is about the next world as well. 
You see, if you look back at Daniel chapter 6, and I didn't read these verses yet, but you look back at Daniel chapter 6, when it talks about him getting put into that den with the lions, it says that he was thrown into the den of lions and a stone was rolled over the, on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So this giant stone was rolled over the top of this pit and, and wax was put there and the seal was put into the wax of the Persian empire. And when that stone was rolled away, Daniel emerged with new life. And if we skip forward to the Gospels in Matthew chapter 27, we read another story of a man condemned to death. And it sounds a little similar, doesn't it? Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it, that's the tomb Jesus was laid in, as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a guard. Sealing the stone means not only did they roll the stone in front of the tomb, but they dripped wax on it. And this time it was the, the, the logo, the seal of the Roman Empire. And when that stone was rolled away, Jesus emerged to new life. And here's the thing about deliverance as Christians. God may save us from punishment for sharing our faith in this world, or he may not. He's going to act to his greatest glory. But your deliverance is already found in Jesus Christ. The fact that he was put in that tomb and the stone was rolled and it was shut and it was sealed and that stone was removed and he emerged in new life victorious. If you have put your trust and your faith in him, then you too were once sentenced to death. You too were once as good as dead and buried, but you have been raised to new life through Jesus Christ. And that is the ultimate deliverance that can never be taken away from you. No matter what people say to you on this, earth or no matter what they do, that deliverance is sealed in eternity forever. And so when the pressure is on, when the pressure is on to take your faith out of the public realm and bring it into hiding so that you don't bother anyone and so no one says anything negative about you, because of who you are through Jesus Christ, remain disciplined in your displays of devotion and trust God for the deliverance. He'll figure that part out. And I am so convicted when I read this passage of the times that in just in the name of self-preservation and so that nothing bad happens to me, I take my faith and make it private. I go into my room and I, I do the equivalent of closing that window and pulling the shades so I don't bother anybody. But our God is great. Our God is strong. He is on your side. Trust him. Do what he's calling you to do. Write that Bible verse that matters to you on the sticky note. Put it on your computer. And who cares what they say? Stop and pray before you eat. Pray in big moments of the day. And who cares what they say? Who cares? Your God's greater than their God. Leave the deliverance part up to him. And do what God is calling you to to do that person that God's been telling you at work or in your classroom to go and pray for because you know they're having a tough time. And the only reason you're not doing it is because you're afraid that they're going to mock you when you do. Who cares? When that pressure is on, remember your God is greater. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come forward. 
as we close this morning. And I want you to think about one last thing with me. If you're a runner, or if you talk to someone who's a runner, and you ask them how to begin to run long distances, do you ever struggle with that? My sister runs marathons. I have a cousin that's really big into marathon running. And I, sometimes I think, you know, I don't know how that works. I don't know how you can run for 26.2 miles, but they do it, and they seemingly do it effortlessly. They've done it over and over and over again. I feel like, I feel like something's fundamentally wrong if you want to run that far, but that's a, different, that's a different story. But they're able to do it so well. And what if you were to say, how can I learn to do that? How can I learn to be an enduring runner? How can I run for long distances? The first thing that you'll learn about proper form when you run is to keep your head up and your eyes scanning the horizon. Keep your head up and your eyes scanning the horizon. I also learned after the first service that this is how they teach figure skaters as well. You want to be a good figure skater? I never took figure skating lessons, but you want to be a good figure skater? Keep your eyes up and look up. Don't look down, you'll fall. The reason you keep your head up and your eyes forward when you're running is that in order for your body to stay in correct alignment, your head has to be in the right place. If you drop your head, your entire body goes out of alignment. And if you're figure skating, you fall. And if you're running, you get weary and you get tired. As you look at the ground and your body is hunched over, your body cannot take the pressure. You will quit. But if you keep your head up and your eyes forward, your body falls into perfect alignment and you can endure. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to keep our heads up and our eyes forward, looking at the God who loves us and who saved us, looking at the God who, who has saved us through Jesus Christ, looking at the God who is powerful, looking at the God who has a great plan for us. And the way that we do that is by not taking prayer and just relegating it to a private place in our lives, but continuing to pray the way that God's called us to pray and continuing to worship the way that God's called us to worship, continuing to read his Bible, read the scriptures the way God has called us to read. And every time we do, our head gets lifted up and our eyes stay focused on the kingdom of God and who he is and the reality that when this world is over. I am with him for eternity. And when I get that right, everything else falls into alignment and I can persevere no matter what happens around me, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, I can keep going because my eyes are where they're supposed to be. So stay disciplined. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Leave the rest to God. I'd invite you, if you would, would you stand as we prepare to close this morning? Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at M-T Hope Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.